You're listening to Mr. Open Banking, the only podcast dedicated to exploring the open banking movement. Whether you're a financial expert, banking executive, or everyday consumer, open banking affects everyone and will change the way we interact with our money. I'm A.L. Savan, your host. This episode is brought to you by Axway, leaders in enterprise integration for over 20 years. If you're like most people, you don't do all your banking with one bank. You probably have one bank for your paycheck and maybe your credit card, but another bank for your mortgage and maybe yet another for your investments. Maybe you're trying out a new fintech or you trade crypto or you want to try out one of these neobanks. Your payments are spread out too, from Venmo to PayPal to Amazon and beyond. In today's world, your financial picture is becoming more and more complex. So, how do you wrangle this complexity? How can you bring all these different accounts and payments together so you can see your full financial picture in one place? Enter Open Banking, which aims to introduce common, open, shared standards for the secure exchange of exactly such data, accounts, transactions, and payments. So whether you bank with one bank or five, fintech or credit union, JPMC or PayPal, they can all talk to each other, which means that you can finally see all your accounts together. That's why the mother of all open banking use cases is called account aggregation. In essence, account aggregation simply means pulling together all your accounts and financial activity across all your providers so that all that data is captured in one place, ideally with your consent. Once all that data is in one place, the door opens to a whole range of new use cases from financial planning to insights to credit checks. But without account aggregation, that door remains closed. Although open banking introduces the idea of open standards, the concept of account aggregation is actually quite old, over 20 years old, in fact, going back to the earliest days of fintech and leading to some huge success stories like Plaid and MX, proving that people want to see all their financial data in one place. But today's aggregators are fueled by open banking, making them markedly different from those that came before. Our guest will share with us the story of account aggregation, where it started, where it's going, and how it might just be the key to building open banking for all. Rolands Mesters is the CEO and co-founder of Nordigen, an open banking solution provider out of Latvia that is helping companies around the world adopt and utilize open banking APIs. Founded in 2016, Nordigen started with the same proposition as many others, account aggregation 
based on Europe's newly minted open banking standards, but with a unique twist. Nordigan offers open banking connectivity to over 2,000 European banks absolutely free. In July 2022, the very month of this interview, Nordigan proudly announced that they had been acquired by UK fintech unicorn GoCardless. Prior to co-founding Nordigan, Rollins ran the digital design and development agency Adventure Designs. A regular guest at fintech events, he has been featured by the industry's leading media outlets, including TechCrunch, Sifted, and Medium, was included in Forbes 30 Under 30, and is considered one of the foremost experts on open banking worldwide. Rollins, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Ayal. Excited to be here. Perhaps the most fundamental of all open banking functions is known as account aggregation. So that seems like a good place to start. How would you define account aggregation? As a customer of a bank, I might have multiple bank accounts in one bank. I might have multiple bank accounts across many banks. It's very hard to keep track of your finances the more bank accounts you have. So in the last 20 years, as we've become more digital with our finance, we've also had more chances to have those digital bank accounts aggregated in one place. And account aggregation basically just means the ability to see all my bank accounts in one place instead of looking for those details across several places. You said 20 years. So this idea of account aggregation is not new. It's been around for a while. The names Yodely and Plaid come to mind. How is what they do different from these newer European aggregators like Tink and TrueLayer and Nordigan? Open banking is quite old by fintech standards. It started in the late 90s when we had the rise of the online banking where people had the ability to see their bank account information online. And then a few smart people figured out that, well, if this information is available online, then you can build algorithms that can access this information and and aggregate banking data from multiple online banking interfaces into one place. And that was literally the first wave of open banking. In the early days, it was companies like Yodley. And and then later, there were some other companies like Amex that also joined the movement. In the midst of all of that, we had Vlad in US, Zofort in Europe, and more recently, companies being created in, in Brazil and Australia and, and all across the space that, that leverage the, the ability to connect to online banks without the need to have these APIs. Europe is different. In Europe in 2019, the regulator passed a law that requested all the banks to build APIs that are following a certain standard. And that means that in Europe, instead of having to build these connections to online banking interfaces completely from scratch, anyone who knows how to do it is now able to access banking APIs and is able to access banking data, which is very unique and very much fantastic to the fintech ecosystem going forward. You said that the older aggregators didn't use APIs to pull together account data from multiple banks. What did they use? 
in the olden days, um, banks had online banking interfaces and people could log in to their online banking interfaces to see their account balances and see the list of transactions. Some smart people realized that those online banking interfaces are websites just like any other websites. The only difference is that in order to get access to this information, you, you need someone's login details. Early days of open banking were literally some algorithms asking people to share their bank credentials so that those algorithms can access the online banking interfaces and scrape the data from those interfaces. What it did was it kickstarted the open banking movement. It kickstarted the ability for people to connect their bank accounts to third-party apps and start to aggregate their banking data in, in one place. But then open banking comes to Europe in the form of PSD2 and standardizes APIs. So you don't need screen scraping anymore. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And this regulation actually comes from the fact that screen scraping started to become quite popular and the regulator just recognized the risks that are associated with this. Today, that's why we have open banking regulation and not, not only here in Europe, UK, Australia, several other countries across the world. And yet, even under PSD2 and elsewhere in other regulated open banking regions, we still see aggregators like Tink and TrueLayer. How does what they do differ from these original aggregators like Plaid and Yodely? So the original aggregators started in, in an era where banks had not even conceived the idea that they will need to have APIs for movement of data. In banks' mind, they thought that all they need to do is to build online banking interfaces or mobile apps and show banking information to people so that they can access the data. The early open banking uh, companies had to invent connectivity completely from scratch. It's a completely different task versus the open banking companies that we have today in Europe. Now, in Europe, once the open banking regulation came into force in the end of 2019, it was not an immediate success story. In fact, on the day that the regulation came into force, most banks did not have production-ready APIs and it took several months for the banks to start building the first APIs. And then that meant that there needed to be companies testing those APIs and making sure that they all work and, and trying to standardize those APIs in one standard. In Europe, there's about 6,000 banks that are re required to have the bank APIs. There's, there's 31 countries where you have the open banking laws in place. Even with the fact that we do have a standard and the standard says how the banks should build those APIs, there was still room for companies in the middle who do aggregate the APIs so that developers can spend more time on building applications. They need to spend less time now on having to figure out how the connectivity works and if it's going to work all across the, the country that they plan to launch their applications in. Do you think that ultimately open banking standards make account aggregation and bank connectivity a commodity? I do, yes. Commodity, it's, it's a harsh word. We're made to believe that when something is commoditized, it's bad, but it's bad for the businesses that are being commoditized because they have to figure out on how 
do they survive? But in this case, it's great for the whole ecosystem. In, in the olden days where we did not have any connectivity and it had to be invented, it was connectivity was incredibly expensive, incredibly expensive. So if you wanted to build a budget planner app that allowed people to connect their bank accounts to this app, this connectivity was so expensive that the budget planner just had to have a way to, to make a lot of money from their end users. That meant that only very rich budget planners literally could plug into this infrastructure. And now as the whole connectivity is, is becoming a commodity, we're suddenly lowering the barrier for, for entry. And that means that not only rich and large companies can get access to this infrastructure, but smaller companies can start to build applications on top of this infrastructure. The further we go, the less of a barrier becomes or the cost associated with using open banking connectivity. The more value we were going to see, the more innovation we're going to see, the more people will have a chance to play around with this technology. When account aggregation first arrived, there simply was no way to retrieve account data properly. There were no APIs. In Roland's words, early aggregators had to invent connectivity completely from scratch. What they invented was something called screen scraping. This rather brutish method uses your bank ID and password to essentially trick your bank into thinking that you're the one logging in. Once logged in, the aggregator proceeds to scrape all the data out of your online banking UI. Make no mistake, nobody likes screen scraping. Banks don't like it because they're being hammered with fake logins. Customers don't like it because it breaks a lot. Regulators don't like it because all these passwords are out in the wild. And, crucially, even the aggregators don't like it because the connections are brittle, expensive to maintain, and different for every bank. Even companies that were built on screen scraping are moving as fast as they can towards APIs. It's not hard to see why. No more sharing passwords, no more broken connections, no more bad data. However, each aggregator still had their own API. So Plaid had one, but Yodely had a different one. And then Europe introduced regulated open banking, requiring that banks publish standardized APIs to share exactly the data these aggregators were getting using their proprietary APIs. The result was predictable. With every bank running the same API, connectivity became commoditized. Aggregators sprung up overnight, driving down the cost. Large players like TrueLayer scaled at breakneck speed. Rollins saw this commoditization as a good thing. Lower connectivity costs meant lower barriers to entry for young developers, and therefore more innovation, which is good for everyone. That's why, in 2020, Nordigan took a rather radical step 
they announced that their account aggregation API, with open banking connectivity to thousands of banks all across Europe, would be 100% free. I asked Rollins what led to that decision. First of all, we had hoped that open banking connectivity will become a commodity much earlier. So when we were starting Nordigan, we had looked at the amazing open banking companies that were already providing connectivity, and we saw the potential rise of, of PSD2. Our expectation was that literally on the day that PSD2 launches, which was a, a day in September, banks will have APIs and they're free to use for, for anyone that connects to them. That's the day that the connectivity is going to start to cost less and less and less to the point that it just converges to zero. And then that is going to basically end up in a fintech revolution. And so we had these expectations of how it can all happen. And as time went by, we, we realized that, well, the open banking was supposed to be a commodity, but it's not commoditizing fast enough. For open banking to take off, you need to figure out a way to make it inexpensive. And then that's when our CTO spent a lot of time with my co-founder, Robert, trying to figure out, well, how do you connect to bank APIs in a super cost-efficient way uh, so that we could provide the connectivity services as cheap as possible? And then the idea to provide it for free really was a long, long decision that we had to make. We had to make a decision whether we'd be the cheapest open banking provider or the one that puts the connectivity out for free. After consulting with the smartest people we could find, we realized that, well, you know, maybe it's worth to try to, to put it out for free. And the biggest surprise was that, well, this kickstarted a lot of projects from developers who previously just could not afford to sign these extensive agreements with these open banking companies. We saw tons and tons and tons of projects that uh, were only possible if the open banking connectivity is, is free. So, so that's how we ended there. Nordigan is giving away connectivity for free, recognizing that it is quickly becoming commoditized. But you're still a business and a successful one, recently being acquired by GoCardless. How does Nordigan generate revenue? Can you speak to some of the premium, or I guess in your case, freemium services that the company offers? What we offer free of charge is the ability to get access to um, banking data. So if you're developing a fintech application and you have many users that will want to connect their bank accounts to your app, what we provide is the ability to do that through an API. You plug into Nordigan and suddenly you have access to banks across Europe. Right now we have 2.3 thousand bank integrations. What we offer on top is the ability to make sense of banking data. Banking data is, is very unstructured, and from bank to bank, it can change. What we have built is, is a set of, of tools and libraries on top of the free banking data that we pull from a bank that helps developers to make sense of banking data. Things like transaction enrichment, transaction categorization. Those are all premium APIs that are available to, to anyone who's using the free open banking API. Let's switch perspectives to the bank side. Once a bank achieves account aggregation and can pull all the data together from multiple institutions, the question becomes, 
what are they going to do with it? You have written about three basic use cases. Personal finance, creditworthiness, and new customer onboarding. Let's go through each of those. What do you mean by personal finance? So me as a customer of a bank, I, let's say I have you know, received a salary on a certain bank account, but today I use additional services such as TransferWise, such as Revolut. There's use case specific fintech services that I use to solve certain problems. Personal finance management really is the ability to aggregate all your financial data in one place. And so if I'm banking with a certain bank, the open banking connectivity allows me to connect my Revolut and TransferWise, any other fintech account that I might have to my current account in the bank and, and see all my finances in one place. And then the bank can help me to figure out how do I save better? How do I invest better? It can suggest some of the services that the bank offers, but also it can make suggestions that improve my financial health. And so that is a very powerful use case for open banking. That was really the, one of the original reasons why open banking regulation was started in Europe, so that some people would have more control over their finances and they could live better financial lives. The second was credit worthiness. So this is a use case that is incredibly near and, and dear to mine and, and my co-founder's hearts. Um, in fact, it was the reason why we started Nordigan. So in Europe, there is no pan-European credit bureau. Many Europeans, they like to work in several countries and they you know, move from one country to another. Being thin-file is really the default for many Europeans. And as thin-file, as in you have a very thin credit record in a credit bureau. It means that you cannot get a mortgage or a credit card in, in none of the countries where you have lived and, and worked, or, or the, the process of getting a mortgage or a credit card is incredibly complex and you have to jump through many hoops. When you had this problem in the olden days and credit history uh, was not sufficient to evaluate a loan applicant, the banks would just ask people to send in the bank statement. And if you think about a bank statement, well, that literally is exactly what you would get through a PSD2 API or an open banking API. This is a use case where we think open banking is going to create a lot of value. Open banking will allow lenders, fintechs, banks across Europe to evaluate the creditworthiness of their customers significantly more accurately. And that is because they would have access to the real financial data of, of a customer as opposed to uh, a proxy for creditworthiness. So open banking is definitely something that is, is going to add a lot of value in, in the lending and creditworthiness industry. And finally... A big one, new customer onboarding. This is another interesting case. Every time that I'm trying to onboard myself onto a, a new fintech, the fintech has to fulfill KYC and AML duties, and they have to ask me a bunch of questions. And in a lot of cases, these questions can be answered by them having access to my banking data because I have been verified by my bank and my bank knows me. This information could be passed to the fintech and make my onboarding experience significantly easier. So let's say you want to make a larger payment through a payments app and, and this pay payments app has to understand you know, the source of, of the funds. Well, instead of them having to ask you to send a, a bank statement, which is what most apps typically do in these cases, all those things can be 
immediately verified by the fact that you can connect your bank accounts to this app. This is how we could take away these hours and hours on all sides, these hours that are currently spent on trying to onboard customers and, and so massive efficiency gain. And if we could spend less time on filling out these forms and sending in bank statements, then, then we would have more time to do fun things. If I'm wearing my bank hat, I'm thinking I can't make a lot of revenue from personal finance because it's being commoditized, because sometimes I'm just sharing my data out in that equation. And I'm gravitating more towards the things that are generating value for me as a bank, like creditworthiness that ultimately lets me issue new loan products. And of course, new customer onboarding, which leads to new accounts. How do you square that circle, if you like? How do I get from sharing my data with others for seemingly little value to generating new business? Fantastic question. And it's been a very hot topic for debate for the last 20 years, I suppose, ever since the first bank accounts were connected to first third-party app. So first of all, the data that the banks have, it's data that they don't really own. The data is actually owned by the account holders. In a lot of ways, the banks really don't have a choice. If their users will want to share this data with third parties, they will do that. The evidence for that is that, well, people do download their bank statements and send those statements to their accounts and share those statements with other banks when they're applying for mortgage. People are willingly sharing their bank credentials to be able to connect their bank accounts to third-party apps. Unfortunately, for the banks, they're a bit cornered, so they don't really have a choice. Sure. You might call that the defense of open banking. My customers want this utility from their data. It is indeed their data. So I'm cornered, as you put it. What I'm interested in is how do I, as a bank, play the offense of open banking and generate new kinds of revenue and opportunities? This is great. I think this really depends on, on what kind of a bank you are. So if you're a challenger bank, if, if you're not the, the number one, number two, number three bank in, in your country, and you are up against this number one, two, three yourself, well, open banking is an immediate way you can level the playing field. You can now get your users to connect their bank accounts from these other banks and in, into your bank. And you can see how they're earning and spending their money in, in a way that you had not been able to understand before. Not only that, you're able to understand a more complete picture of their true finances. So for challenger banks, really, this is a, a vehicle for them to challenge the big banks for big banks, it's a bit different. For big banks, the value is a bit more subtle. Yes, they have to give away a lot of value, but in the long term, what they're able to have is more control. In the old days, when connectivity did not exist and screen scraping was the, the method for allowing people to connect their bank accounts to apps, that the big banks did not have any control over who gets access to what. In fact, they could barely see that someone's bank account was being scraped. 
And now with open banking, they know exactly who is connecting to which bank accounts, uh, how frequently, and they have legitimate reasons to get more information about what is happening and, and why. That gives them just more information to plan ahead. Nordigan's bet turned out to be right. Offering a free aggregator API based on open banking standards opened the door to scores of new developers. Developers who simply could not afford to turn their cool fintech idea into something real unless the connectivity was free. However, just because the connectivity part becomes a commodity, that doesn't mean there isn't a role for aggregators. They just have to offer more than simple connectivity. That starts with making sense of all the data they're getting from different banks, a process known as normalization. Once they've organized and categorized all that data, they can start to provide support for premium use cases, like the three Rowans took us through. Personal finance, credit worthiness, and customer onboarding. Aggregators are well aware of this trend as they race to provide more and more value in understanding the data rather than simply capturing it. The bank perspective is a little more complicated. If you're a smaller bank, the benefit is obvious. Open banking levels the playing field. But if you're a bigger bank, you may be asking yourself, why would you share data at all? Here's the thing. Your customers have already been sharing that data for over 20 years. So it's happening whether you like it or not. Open banking gives you more control and visibility into how that data is shared than you've ever had before. If you're smart, you can find ways to turn that visibility into opportunity. There remains a larger philosophical question. Why free? That's where Rollins and I pick things up. Why was it so important to you personally that there was a free option? What was it that was unfair? Open banking, the reason this concept exists is that it makes banking inclusive, hence the word open. Open banking was invented so that people would not be tied to one entity that has a monopoly over their data and, and their finances, but they could have more freedom, more choices, etc. And if open banking works, that means that people have more choice and, and there's more competition on the market. And if it doesn't, so we're back to the days where you, you know, started your life with one bank and, and you kind of used that same bank for the rest of your life never had a chance to close your bank account and move to a, to a better banking experience. Open banking is, is all about FAIR. FAIR is kind of subtly embedded inside of open banking. Open banking should be democratically available. Open banking should be accessible to people that want to use it. 
And it's okay that we went through these days when, when it didn't exist and, and it had to be invented. And it's okay that there's still companies that are charging money for connectivity. I think that's all necessary. But I also think that's where this is supposed to go is that this should be something that's democratically available. Very much like internet is democratically available. In a lot of ways, we saw open banking as a way to solve many of the issues that we thought existed in the industry. And fairness is a, a big one. We, we don't think it's fair that people are rejected for a loan just because a credit bureau does not have anything on, on their credit history. We don't think it's fair that people are rejected from banking services just because, um, well, they don't have all their documents available at, at hand. There's lots of things that are not fair inside of the financial system, and I don't think it's great that we should accept it. We shouldn't. You've taken an interesting perspective on inclusion, almost a meta perspective. Most people who talk about inclusive in the context of open banking talk about end users, the unbanked, and so on. You seem to be focused on including developers who may have encountered barriers to entry, cost or otherwise related to open banking. And via including those developers, you're going to therefore include more end users. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. And, and here is where I think open banking has some synergies with Web3, with the crypto movement. I think a lot of the innovation that we have seen coming out of the Web3 movement in general has a lot to do with the fact that it was just so available to developers. And these developers invented things that helped people to solve real problems. And those developers had fun along the way when they were building these things. And so absolutely, I think by including developers into the narrative, we're allowing more people to look at what can be built with this. And, and if there's more people looking at this, there's a bigger chance that some, someone is going to build something extraordinary. Rollins, why is it so important to bring open banking to everyone? What we want to avoid is a situation where you are banking with a bank and, and this bank has a monopoly over your financial health. Open banking is a way for more competition to exist on the market, for more financial institutions to build more innovative products, and for these monopolies to not exist. Going forward, I think there's a lot of things that are still needed to make open banking accessible for everyone. And right now we've, we've lowered the, the price barriers, but there's loads of other barriers that still exist. As long as there's barriers that need to be removed, that's something that we'll be working on. This is the reason why we're doing this. By removing the barriers for open banking, we will bring open banking to as many people as possible. Rollins, where can our guests find out more about you? and your work with Nordigan. Yeah, I think the simplest way is just to connect with me on LinkedIn. Just find Roland's Masters on, on LinkedIn. Con let's connect. Just feel free to shoot, shoot a message. 
Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. There can be little doubt that one of the main outcomes of open banking is the commoditization of bank connectivity. By introducing shared standards, open banking enables the rapid creation of a financial ecosystem where the players can all talk to each other securely, instead of one where they simply cannot. Suddenly, the role of account aggregator changes overnight. In Europe, titans like TrueLayer and Tink rise to prominence, supporting PSD2. In the US, the original players like Yodely, Plaid and MX see the writing on the wall and start to rethink their strategies. With Plaid's release of Core Exchange earlier this year, Every major American aggregator now supports the FDX standard without any regulation. That's because they realized what Rollins already knew, that the commoditization of connectivity is a good thing. Ultimately, it raises all boats. A financial system where banks can talk to each other where customers can control how their data is shared, solves a lot of tough problems. Instead of maintaining connections, aggregators and their customers can start building real value. Powered by efficient, reliable data, aggregation can become a building block for something more. Along with the commercial benefits, there's another side here. Open banking also strives to create a financial system that is more fair and more inclusive. One way it does this is by making customers' lives easier, letting them interact with their money in whole new ways. Another way is by bringing banking to those who had no access to it before, what some call the unbanked. But Rollins views inclusion a little differently, more as a meta problem. To his mind, inclusion starts with developers, the coders using the APIs. The more developers you include in the open banking ecosystem, the more we all win. That's why open standards and open source work. Open technologies make it possible for any smart developer anywhere in the world to build something real. If open banking for all is truly the goal, then we have to start by including all developers. listening to Mr. Open Banking, the podcast that explores the ongoing evolution of open banking and its impact on our lives. Make no mistake, the rise of open banking is going to change financial services forever, and we will be covering that story every step of the way. This is your host, A.L. Savan. Until next time.
This episode was made possible by Axway, leaders in enterprise integration for over 20 years and creators of the Amplify platform. To learn more, visit axway.com.